Amen. Thank you for that. Romans chapter 5 this morning, please. Romans chapter number 5. And let's go ahead and stand, please. And let's begin in verse number 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And patience experience. And experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commandeth his love, commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression who is the figure of him that was to come. And we will stop there this morning and let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we might behold the greatness of our Savior and the greatness of our salvation. That we might know the depth of your mercy and the breadth of your grace. Teach us, Father, about yourself and ourselves and our Savior, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, I began earlier in the year by pointing out our selfish self-centeredness, the, really the, the primary problem when we talk about our sinfulness is our tendency to live for ourselves, our desire to live for us. 
And this comes into direct conflict from what, with what God demands of us. Love him with all of our hearts and with all of our minds and all of our wills and all of our strength. Have no other God in his face that he can see. Say only the right things about him. Worship him in only the right way. Trust his word and will in all things. This morning I want to begin to pivot a little bit and focus on just a few of the things that God has done for us in saving us. The gospel message is not an offer of negotiation. We do not give God our best offer and he makes a counter offer. But in negotiations, we're aware that parties can be close together or far apart. When it comes to our lostness and God's righteousness, folks, it is impossible for us to calculate how far apart we were. There was no common ground. God demanded complete and total unwavering allegiance, loyalty, and devotion. And we were simply unwilling to give it, unable to give it. And so when God saved us, it is, as the preacher in Hebrews pointed out, a very great salvation. And we will again turn our attention to some of the ways in which it is great. And this morning I wish to call our attention simply to one of them, and that is the word atonement. The atonement. The word atonement is actually primarily an Old Testament word. Eighty-one of the eighty-two forms of the word atone are found in the Old Testament. And almost always it is in reference to the sacrifice of an animal, an animal that is offered in an atonement. In 2 Samuel 21, David used the word with reference to the Gibeonites that Saul had killed. And the only New Testament use of the word is in Romans 5.11. Not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. So only in Romans 5.11 in the New Testament do you find the word atonement, and yet the Greek word that is used there, atonement, is actually used other places in the New Testament. It is found, for instance, in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 10. The same Greek word, not the same English word, but the same Greek word. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled. And it is found in Romans eleven fifteen. It is found in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 20. It is found in verses 1 Corinthians 7, 11 where a 
spouse is to be reconciled to their spouse. And that is the word that is usually used in the New Testament to describe the Old Testament concept of atonement. Reconciled or reconciliation. The word itself actually comes from the Greek banking world. In the Roman and Greek world, reconciling was the money changer's profit. What he gained in exchange for the trade. It is the word used to describe a transaction. Much like the word ransom. Son of man came to give his life a ransom. There is a transaction. And in this case, folks, it is not money that is being exchanged. It is not merchandise that is being exchanged. What is actually being exchanged is God's anger. God's anger. If you look at Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1, therefore being justified, another concept that we will deal with in the future, we have peace. We have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin with this this morning, some pretty familiar territory to all of us, to those of us that have been in church a while, but why do we need to be reconciled? Let's use the New Testament word. Why do we need to be reconciled to God? And there is a two-part answer to the question, folks. One of the parts is the human side. We need to be reconciled to God because of our sin. Because of our sin. Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin... And so death passed upon all. So death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For that all have sinned. So that just as your dog is a dog by nature, and just as your cat is a cat by nature, and just as your hamster is a hamster by nature, so are we sinners by nature. It is our constitution, it is the language we speak, the air we breathe, the nature we bring to the world. We are inclined, folks, whether we like to admit this or not, to pursue crooked solutions to almost every one of life's problems and questions. In our world history class, we've been talking about some of the Enlightenment philosophers I particularly find fascinating those group of people who insist that man is basically good and society is basically sinful and wonder how it is that we keep encountering the same dilemma that good people make bad societies. How is is that? How is something that is basically good always producing something that is basically terrible? And the answer is, that we are not basically good. We are basically bad. Romans 5.12 informs us that we are sinful by nature. That is the doctrine of original sin, if you will. It is the nature that came to all of us through the fall of Adam. 
over which you had no control. Our children were born that way. Their children will be born that way. If another million generations live, they will all be born that way. Everybody who has any connection to Adam, the first man, is going to come into the world with the same problem that Adam had, a sinful nature. We are also sinful by our conduct. The sin nature, folks, does sinful things. Galatians 5.21 is one of those places that provides an unflattering but extensive list. Envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and the such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What could be more plain? What could be more straightforward? What could be more indicting? What could be more condemning? That all the things that men love to do, we love to party and we love to make noise and we love to chase women and we love to get a little bit of a buzz on and we just love all that stuff. And there is no place in the kingdom for those that do those things. Not just sinners in theory, not just sinners in nature, not just sinners in the laboratory, but sinners in life. And in fact, folks, the reality is to continue on down this road, what we are is so sinful that even if we are endeavoring to do right, God finds it repugnant. Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses, all our righteousnesses, are as filthy rags. Our righteousnesses are unrighteous in the sight of God. And so we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. I mean, just think about it, folks. Who gave us the Ten Commandments? The most perfect being in existence God, Jehovah. Here, do these things. And then that same perfect being informs us that all that that will ever do is condemn us. Galatians 2.16, For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And so because we are natures by, sinners by nature and sinners by conduct, it is no surprise, at least it should be no surprise, that when people go on to talk about God or think about God or describe God, they tend to do so in sinful terms. They find him sinful if they find him to be anything at all. But that is only one part of the picture, folks, to go back to Romans Chapter 5, one part of the picture, why do I need to be justified? Because I, by nature, do not see God properly. I am unrighteous by my very existence. But the other side of the coin is this. Why do we need to be reconciled? We are angry at God. And he is angry at us.
And that is one of those things that in our own sinfulness we sometimes reject. Right? God is, God is love. And that is true. He defines himself that way. God is loving. And sometimes people will say, well, I just don't believe God would do anything like that. He would never condemn people. He would certainly never send anybody to an eternal condemnation. All of that in spite of the fact that he has stated unequivocally on a number of occasions that is exactly what he will do. Or sometimes people like to point out what is really a wonderful cliche, but you have to be careful with it. Well, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And there is some truth to that, but only some truth to that. For instance, God is willing to save sinners, but he is never willing to save sin. But again, let's let the Lord speak. Psalm 711, God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. So it's a little more complicated than that he hates the sin but loves the sinner. Deuteronomy 25.14, Thou shalt not have in thine house diverse measures, great and small, but thou shalt have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure shalt thou have, that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For all that do such things, for all that do such things, and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. All that do them. Or Ephesians 5, 6, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. So one of the reasons, folks, why do we need reconciliation? Because we are hostile to God. But quite honestly, even more critically, he is hostile to us. It is true that he loves sinners. But that love for sinners goes directly to the cross of Christ and calls immediately for believing in Christ and offers no alternative to the work of Christ or one will suffer for his sins. Or as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Which I think we're all pretty much aware that the most challenging part of dealing with people is getting them to understand that that is really their state. That God is not in the business of saving good people. He is only in the business of saving bad people. So why do we need to be reconciled? Secondly, how did God bring about reconciliation? Or how did he bring about the atonement? We have received Romans 5.11 
the atonement. Well, Paul answers it there, by the way, specifically, although broadly, in Romans 5.11, not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. That little word by there, that, that preposition by, has the idea of through, right? It is through the work of Christ that we have the, reton- the atonement. And in, and in fact, in, without going all grammatical on you, in Romans 5.11, it is the same preposition used by Paul through and by that we have translated through and by. So how did Christ, right? How did God accomplish the atonement? Christ. What did Christ do? How did Christ accomplish the atonement? Well, one part of that answer, folks, is through the life that he lived. Romans, you're in Romans 5. Look at verse number 19. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Well, that's Adam. Right? Adam disobeyed. And now all of Adam's descendants... You, me, my kids, my grandkids, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one man shall many be made righteous. How did Christ accomplish reconciliation? Through his active obedience. We don't have the time to do this, folks, but let me just... Put this in your mind. Think about all of the times in the Gospels that Jesus was careful to point out that what he was doing was the Father's will. That what he was saying were the Father's words. These are not my words. These are the Father's words. I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Father, I always do those things that are pleasing to you. Folks, the active obedience of Christ is not just simply going to a cross. The active obedience of Christ is that everything that he did, every word that he spoke, every action that he took, was in perfect keeping of the law of Moses. His was complete and total righteousness of word, thought, and deed, even to going to the cross. Or as Paul puts in Philippians 3.9, be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Jesus didn't just come along and do his thing and it was righteous. Jesus came along And did the will of the Father. Because folks. The law demands. That we do not live for ourselves. But for him. And so Jesus would say. I didn't come to do my own will. But the will of him that sent me. And then folks. Once we have that established in our minds. His active obedience. We have what is known as his passive obedience. 
Calvary. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 5.10, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his Son. We were reconciled by the death of his Son. Neither can be excluded. Why do I need to be reconciled? I have no righteousness of my own. And God demands total righteousness. And this is a real problem. This is, not a, this is not a question of whether one likes vanilla or chocolate. Or Coke or Pepsi. This is unrighteousness and righteousness. Complete incompatibility. We need to be reconciled. How are we reconciled? His perfect life. Provides the righteousness that I need. And his substitutionary death. Takes the judgment that I need. So God killed Christ. And then bearing testimony to the righteousness of Christ. And the divinity of Christ. Because God cannot die. God raised him from the dead. So why do we need it? Our unrighteousness is incompatible with God's righteousness. How do we get it? Christ's perfect life and perfect death. Why did God do this? Why this pathway? And part of the answer to that question, obviously folks, God's love, and we'll come to that, but Let's answer the question first this way. The justice of God, the righteousness of God demands this. Look back, if you would, at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 21. But now... But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is of by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, the appeasement of his anger, through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that, and the idea of the word there is so that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. But I want to call your attention specifically to what Paul puts there at the end of verse number 25. For the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. In any conversation about human righteousness, folks, 
One of our preeminent arguments is whether or not somebody else got away with what we're in trouble for. But he did it. He got away with it. How come he can do it and I can't do it? That's the way we talk when we talk about righteousness. Why am I in trouble for it? Why did you pull me over for speeding? Lots of people were speeding. Romans 3.25, folks, is your assurance that nobody ever gets away with anything. Adam didn't get away with his sin. David didn't get away with adultery. Moses didn't get away with murder. I mean, on the list of human transgressions, folks, those are the two big ones. All right, I mean, if we're going to talk about, just from a human standpoint, the things that cause the most trouble, murder and adultery, are right up at the top of the list. And Moses committed murder. And David committed adultery. And nobody got away with anything because those sins were dealt with by the blood of Christ. Romans 3, 21 through 26. To make this demonstration, folks, verse number 26, to declare, I say, at this time, right now, Paul writes, at the present day, many thousands of years after Adam and Moses and Samson and Jephthah and whoever else you want to put on the list, To declare his righteousness, that he might be just, that he might be righteous. And the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. No transgression gets ignored, folks. No transgression gets overlooked. Not in the past, not in the future, not in the present. This was an essential part of understanding why God reconciled us this way. Why couldn't God just, you're God, you don't answer to anybody. You don't have to explain yourself to anybody. Why couldn't you just give everybody a big pass? Well, one of the reasons is, folks, is because giving us a pass only makes us inclined to sin more. It doesn't really make us inclined to sin less. But the other reason is because the justice of God demands punishment for sin. And then, folks, then, having established that, then, and I would argue only then, can we introduce his love into the picture. We all know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was an act of love, the greatest act of love, for God to punish his own son for our sins. And this is something, folks, think about this. Let me just read to you this verse and think about this. 2 Peter 2.4 For if God spared not the angels that sinned. This is a love unique to humans that he does not extend to fallen angels. 
If God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. God loves humanity in a way that he will never love angels. So God's love is genuinely a big part of the equation. Why did God reconcile me to him through his son? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Which brings me then finally to this. How should we respond to this reconciliation? How are we to think about it? I mean, this is, there's a sense, folks, in which this is just a positional fact. And I'm not trying to make it lifeless. But however old you were when you came to faith in Christ, however old you were when you got saved, young or old, you were at that moment brought into reconciliation with God. Well, let me just give to you what I think would be obvious to all of us. How should we respond to the reconciliation that we have with God through the work of Christ? Number one, to believe it and to accept it. Or as Paul puts it in Philippians 3.9, again, be found in him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Right, here are the options, folks, and, and I'm, I'm going to veer off a little bit from reconciliation into the world of justification, but you can see that Paul's dealing with them all together. Here are the options, right? You're going to stand before God. And God's going to ask you, let's just say one question. How righteous are you? Do you want to present your righteousness or Christ's? I mean, let me just give you a stupid illustration, folks. I just, and the only thing more stupid than this one is maybe the one that follows it. Right? You go to a football game and your name is called and you're brought to the 50-yard line and a billion dollars is yours if you can kick a field goal from the 50-yard line. But here's your option. Best field goal kicker in the NFL will kick it in your place. What's your choice? What's your choice? Or the same thing, <clears throat> I looked this up. Everything that I know about cooking, I can put into one word, one sentence. I like to eat. <clears throat> By the way, in 2023, the Dallas Cowboys field goal kicker, Brandon Aubrey, had the best record in the NFL. Supposing it's the same thing. Maybe football's not your thing that cooking is, and you're offered a billion dollars for cooking a superb beef wellington. The internet tells me that a beef wellington is the most difficult dish to cook. You can make your own or Gordon Ramsay can cook it for you. Not a Gordon Ramsay fan, but he is considered to be the king of the beef wellington. What should I do with the fact that God has offered me reconciliation through the person and work of Christ? You should accept it and believe it. You should take his righteousness for yourself. You should utterly repudiate your own and any hope of salvation through it. 
But then to go back to Romans chapter 5, folks. What should I do with this reconciliation? You should not only trust it for your salvation, you should trust it for your life. You should trust it for your life. Let's go back to the early part of the chapter here and let me try and explain that there is a very real connection between the early part and the latter part. Romans 5.11, we have now received the atonement. You know, and it's a good way to think about the word. We have now received the at-one-ment. We're at one. Are we at one? Are we at one? Paul's presenting it here as a fact. I'm kind of throwing it out to you as a question. Look at your life. Look back over the events of your life. Look at how you've lived. Look at the things you've experienced. Let me ask you a question again. Do you believe that you're in atonement with God? Now notice how Paul plays off of that in the early part of chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We're at one. Right? If in a marriage, a husband and a wife are in reconciliation, they have peace, right? That's, that's kind of a no-brainer. When, 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 you're both on, when we're both on the same page, then we have peace. We have tranquility. We have harmony. By whom also, verse number two, we have access by faith into this grace where we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, let me ask you again. Are you reconciled? Do you really believe that you and God are on the same page? Then what do you do with verse number three? Not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. The word glory there refers to the idea of bragging, boasting. We boast about our troubles. Why do we boast about our troubles? Let me propose to you folks that we can boast about our troubles because we understand we're reconciled. Because here's the way people are inclined to think. Good people are inclined to think this way. I have trouble because God is unhappy with me. I have trouble because God is unhappy with me. Now God does chasten and discipline his children. But folks, that is not the same thing as God being out to get you. Paul was looking at the troubles he experienced through the lens of reconciliation and peace. We have peace. I mean, this doesn't really make sense, folks, if you don't think of it properly. I have peace with my wife, and yet we fight. I have peace with my coworker, but we're fighting. We glory in tribulations. Why? Because they don't reflect God's displeasure but they reflect something else entirely. Therefore, we glory in tribulations, knowing that they work patience. See, they work a good thing, not a bad thing. One of the things that Paul is trying to get us to understand is the role of difficulty in the life of somebody who has been harmonized with God. 
to think about those tribulations properly. Nothing that Jesus experienced, right, was designed to just be God out to get him. There was a righteousness to the judgment that greatly distressed Christ. But it was something that he embraced in understanding the Father's righteousness and his ultimate purposes. So we glory in tribulation knowing that they work patience, that patience brings experience, and experience brings hope. So that there is an ongoing, right? There is a testimony, folks. There should be a testimony to saints with some experience under their belt to the faithfulness of God. Because these things don't happen in a minute. There are tribulations and they produce endurance. And the endurance produces experience. Seen this before. Know what to do. Not going to fall apart. Not going to lose my head. That produces hope, understanding what God is doing. And hope doesn't lead to being ashamed, just the opposite. And we have the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Verse number four, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. All this, folks, plays off of the peace, right? All of this about tribulation plays off of the status of peace, which is possible by the atonement. Not disconnected, disjointed, random ramblings by Paul. Not a hodgepodge of Christian attributes, let's throw them all in together. But they are all dependent upon each other. And so we rejoice. We rejoice. And we joy in God. Verse number 11, not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as we are reconciled through Christ, we joy in God through Christ. Because we have received the atonement. So, two things. Have you accepted the atoning work of Christ for the salvation of your own soul? And are you working towards rejoicing in the tribulations that God brings to you? Understanding that they are not simply expressions of his displeasure and hostility, but are working for a greater goal. Let's pray this morning. Father.